The invasion of Ukraine almost a year ago has exposed the insecurity of the UK's energy supply. We've long relied on imported fossil fuels, or fossil fuels dictated by international prices. We're now deep in a winter of discontent where people face a severe cost-of-living crisis not helped by rising energy bills. So looking ahead, how can the UK secure its energy supply to prevent another precarious situation, as we've seen this winter, from happening again? I'm Cindy Yu, The Spectator's Assistant Editor. I'm joined on this podcast by Laura Sands, OBE, former Tory MP and who also chaired the government's Energy Data Task Force, which investigated how more data could transform our energy system. James Murray is an environmental journalist who founded the website Business Green. And Greg Jackson, founder and CEO of Octopus Energy Group, who are currently sponsoring this podcast. So welcome, everyone. Now, to start with, James, I wondered if you can start by giving listeners an idea of Britain's uh, energy mix and, by extension, just how secure our supply is. Because over the last year, it has definitely felt precarious, with the government still not ruling out blackouts and so on. Yeah, so the first thing to say is it's just changed massively over the last decade, and it's a bit of an underreported story. So back in 2010, the UK was getting three quarters of its power from coal and natural gas, and a huge chunk of that was actually from coal. You know, that was kind of almost 40% of the mix. And then by the end of the decade, so a couple of years ago, you know, fossil fuels were around 40% of the mix, and you were seeing closer to 60% coming from nuclear and renewables and a sort of huge and growing chunk from renewables. Last year, gas was 38.5%, coal was virtually non-existent. And the large chunk was coming from sort of 26 upwards percent of wind, 15% nuclear. And then the other balance is kind of solar, biomass, some imports from the continent, hydro, and, and increasingly energy storage. So we've kind of gone from this approach where The grid was dominated by fossil fuels, which obviously come with huge climate change implications and energy security implications in the fact that a lot of it's imported to a scenario where increasingly the the backbone of the grid is clean power. It's, It's nuclear and to a very, very large extent, it's wind, particularly offshore wind. So you've seen this massive transition happening over the last decade. Now, what that means for energy security is the subject of really intense debate because, you know, there's been these scare stories for a long time. Every winter we go into it and say there's going to be blackouts, there's energy shortages, we're going to need rationing. And environmentalists and those who are sort of pro this transition are a bit reluctant to sort of say that's scaremongering because there are concerns, you know, the margins have got a bit tight. But, and I hope I'm not what's the word? I hope I'm not tempting fate here. But it hasn't happened. You know, there is this portfolio approach where we have capacity, we have backup capacity secured through technical means through the government has this capacity market, which we could possibly go into quite wonky, but really important stuff. You know, we do have the backup capacity. And we do have this large fleet of renewables. And the net result is that through these consistent winters, particularly this last winter, when we've obviously had the huge pressure on the energy market caused by Russia, and other factors, we have consistently been able to maintain energy security. Now, the problem is, is that, as you mentioned, we are on this huge transition. This hasn't been done anywhere before. You know, we're at the cutting edge of this grand industrial revolution that's happening globally. And managing security as you make those shifts is going to be a challenge. But there is a plan, you know, there there is energy storage coming online. There is, you know, gas backup still available. There is talk of hydrogen and carbon capture and storage and other technologies. So, it's not to downplay the risk, but it's not this kind of new point that we should be worried about it. Everyone in the industry is aware of it. 
there is a plan to date it's been working and there's reasons to think it will continue to work. Well, I guess one of the problems, one of the new things that have happened over the last year that's raised new concerns is the Russian invasion, as you say, James. I mean, when we talk about that 40% of gas that we still use, how much of that is imported? I mean, not necessarily from Russia, but how much of that is reliant on global markets anyway? Well, a huge chunk of it is reliant on global markets, whether it's imported or whether it's produced in the North Sea and the price is set by the global markets. The UK, unlike Germany and some other countries, didn't import directly huge amounts from Russia, but it was still exposed to the price hikes that we've seen. And that's one of the reasons that the UK has been more exposed to the sort of price volatility than other markets around the world, because we are so reliant on gas. We didn't create a hedging position by maintaining significant gas storage capacity, which obviously looking back, I think most people would now accept was an error at that time, born of thinking that things would remain stable, when of course, that's not a particularly solid bet in the 21st century. (laughs) And as a result, we are exposed to those gas prices. And that's the primary driver of these high prices that we've seen for this past year. Again, the the tiny silver lining to this is it does seem to have been a wake-up call, particularly across Europe and belatedly in the UK. Well, after a year of political turmoil, the government does seem to have finally recognised that being this reliant on gas is a problem. And we need a kind of really multifaceted, incredibly ambitious plan to reduce our exposure to what is a very costly, very volatile, even before you get onto the fact, very polluting fuel source. Mm. Well, Laura, let's talk about the plan then. In your view, what do you think are the kind of the short, medium and long term things we should be doing? I mean, in the short term, something that comes to mind is something that the government has already done with the household support for bills. But what are some of those things in your mind? Well, I think the household support is incredibly useful and important. And I think it's carved off quite a lot of the edge for what I call middle income families. But I think we have got a major cost of living problem. I do a lot of work in food insecurity as well, food, energy, absolutely linked. And we have got people who are desperate out there. Mm. So I think there is actually much more that should be done in terms of, of welfare and benefit support over this particular period. But talking specifically about the energy sector... I mean, it's so extraordinary. It's been going on year after year. We do not address energy efficiency. Mm. Why are we not doing a national program of rollout of energy efficiency? It is what I would call the first fuel. And we could be reducing our consumption, totally managing, you know, what James was talking about is any risk. And in a strange way, who has helped us in this particular winter is the weather. Mm. The weather has allowed us to be more energy efficient because it hasn't been as cold. However, this is something that's absolutely crucial. So I think in the short term, we've got to look at a real national rollout of energy efficiency. I think that actually one of the key things that's coming out of this is that we potentially need to look at an essential service tariff. So you actually start to create a very basic, a little bit like broadband. So mm. you end up with, you know, the, the very boring, but it covers all those essential needs for households. And then you have premiums on top. So you start to decouple. Is it possible to do that at the point of, of use? You know, yes, say- it is. Absolutely. Okay. And it's very similar to, to a sort of broadband package. Mm. But I think it's time to think about that. I would say it probably moves into the medium term. In the medium term, we actually need to really rethink this whole market in the sense, and I'm sure Greg would 
agree with this. We need retail reform, but we need market reform and we need regulatory reform. We're currently investing. My, my problem with the current system is that we are looking at fossil fuels and renewables as if they were the same asset class. They're mm. different. And what we're doing is we are designing something around, my analogy, the mainframe, when actually we should be really looking at the PC mobile model and reversing back in. So IBM would have said... 20, 30 years ago, well, you know, everything is centralized and everything comes from me and it's a bit like a hose pipe, right? Actually, where we're moving to is a much more distributed, much more demand-driven system. And that requires a very different model. So by that, do you mean people can become their own energy producers, like solar panels on your roofs and that kind of thing? So you've got self-generation, absolutely. And we should be definitely mandating every new home to have PV on it. So solar panels, you know, EVs are part of the story here. Mm -hmm. But actually, you know, when you look at corporates, companies should be super, not incentivized in the sense of paid, but facilitated to self-generate. And then what we end up having is a system that is driven by demand rather than supply. And that demand is going to give us a lot more flexibility. Mm -hmm. My other very sort of crazy analogy is, is around food is if you think we're trying at this moment to understand the weather, right? Well, the weather doesn't take price signals. It doesn't follow legislation, right? But demand is actually incredibly boring. We get up at the same time. Mm. We are very, very much more malleable in a way than the weather. And if you think of food, you've got a situation where you have two harvests a year. What do we do? We store it, refrigerate it. So we need a very, very clear strategic plan on storage as a refrigeration mechanism for the volatile weather. Mm. And part of that storage actually sits in your home. So it could be your EV car that is a bit like your fridge. Interesting. You could be using your PV as a form of, you know, self-generation. So I think we need a real rethink, and that's the medium term. Laura, that sets us up really nicely for the rest of the discussion. I want to bring Greg into this as well, because Octopus is now, I think I'm right in saying, the fourth largest supplier of energy in the UK. So you're a big player in the market, but you're not one of the traditional ones. So when it comes to supporting consumers through this winter, then why don't you tell us about what you've been doing? Uh, Thank you. And by the way, not to wave big numbers, I think we're the second or third, depending on how you measure it. Oh, gosh. um, (laughs) Look, I think that the first thing we've got to do is say that the wholesale gas price inflation has been beyond anybody's imagination. At one point, going into the winter, gas prices were 1,400% of their usual level. Now, look, when we look at food inflation of 13%, we worry. So that's what's going on in the background. And that's why when Laura is talking about the need to help people through this crisis in the short term, I can't overstate the extent to which we would destroy livelihoods, lives, households and families if we didn't have the government support we've seen. And we're probably going to need more. Now, we're basically pretty confident we're now going to get through this winter. So prices are moderating. But next winter, we've got to get through as well. Now, if Ukraine continues, if we continue with the the gas supply issues globally, next winter could be as challenging as this winter. In the short term, you know, I was on my way home one night. It was bitterly cold. And I knew that our customers, some of them, would be worrying about turning the heating on. 
And, you know, we were thinking, what can you do about this? It was 10 o'clock at night. And I remember a conversation with a PhD engineer who said, it takes 40 or 60 watts to heat a human, but a gas boiler is 10,000 watts. So actually, the thing we could do is we, we went out and, and literally that night at 10 p.m., I phoned our chief product officer. And I said, look, can we get hold of electric blankets? She bought 5,000 electric blankets. And we told our team, if people are phoning in, worrying, like literally suffering in the cold, send them an electric blanket. By the way, we didn't tell anyone. It wasn't a PR thing. It was a way to help people through this. Now, there are the legion examples, but that's one of the most kind of illustrative that the thing we've got to do is make sure people stay healthy, warm, and with as much reduced anxiety as possible. By the way, that reduces their heating bill from maybe four pounds a day for a gas boiler or more during the cold snaps to you know, a few pence an hour for an electric blanket. Now, you know, Laura talked about the inefficiency of our homes. You know, it is madness that we've got used to, as a nation, just burning gas, regardless of climate change. You know, just, just in a cost sense, it is madness we've got used to burning gas just to make up for the fact we've got, you know, the leakiest homes in Europe. Now, we can start to address this in lots of ways. So the other kind of things Octopus have done is said, look, what is the most efficient way to heat a home? Without question, the most efficient, energy-efficient way to heat a home is a heat pump. It turns one unit of electricity into three units of heat. Nothing can match that. And you know, even if you're generating the electricity using gas generating stations, it's about 50% more efficient than a gas boiler in terms of its energy use, right? In terms of use of gas to generate heat. So the kind of thing we've done as a company is invested, not sucked at the government teat, but invested our investors' money in bringing heat pump solutions to UK homes. And increasingly, we're scaling those cheaply and building the technology into them that use as much electricity as possible at times it's windy and sunny. That's the cheapest energy we've ever had. And then at times where it's not windy and sunny, we need less storage because we've already used electricity. That's the kind of intelligence we're building. People don't even need to think about it. The devices do it automatically for them. It brings the costs down and it makes us more energy independent so we don't suffer at the hands of the fossil fuel. And very briefly, I recognise that this is such a big topic. But I grew up in the... I was a kid in the 1970s and we had dinner by candlelight because we had fossil fuel crises. We've had fossil fuel crises on and off for every decade I've been alive. This could be the last one because for the first time ever, we have the ability to deploy tremendously cheap, clean generation and the technology to make the most of it. James, in your first answer, you alluded to this big debate about whether or not renewables help in the short term in terms of our energy security. And one thing that I have seen an objection raised by uh, people such as Professor Dieter Helm of the University of Oxford is that by relying on certain renewables such as wind, we're not thinking enough about the intermittency problem. And in response, you know, by phasing out things like nuclear, perhaps for separate reasons, we're relying on gas because we phase out coal as well. So James, I wanted to get your thoughts on how much intermittency is still a problem with these kind of renewables, because at the end of the day, we still need some kind of backup system. And is that still going to be gas or should we be thinking about other stuff? And does actually talking about renewables to the extent that we have been over the last few years make us forget about these other backup systems and their importance? I don't think so. I mean, I do take issue with some of this analysis that sort of suggests that renewables are part of the problem here or, or that we're neglecting other parts of the portfolio. I mean, that's just not what's happening in reality. There is investment continuing in smart grids, in energy storage systems and in gas plants with the future planning for carbon capture and storage to ensure that emissions goals are met. I mean, there's, there's two key points I'd like to make here. One, the decarbonisation of the grid is non-negotiable. You know, we are facing a climate crisis, the likes of which 
humanity has never seen that has epic economic implications, humanitarian implications. And also we are in a race with all the other major economies to lead the world in the adoption of clean technologies. Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, the EU's plans, what China's doing, what India's doing, all around the world, there is a race to deploy these technologies. And if the UK gets left behind, reliant on 20th century technologies, we will face you know, long-term economic decline. I mean, that's a very, very simple sort of competitive analysis of what is going on globally. So we have to do this. We have to deploy these clean technologies. And renewables, as Greg points out, are far and away the cheapest source of power available globally now. I mean, and that's International Energy Agency. Any analysis you do shows this up time and time again. Now, on the point of intermittency, you know, you kind of get this on Twitter. I get this all the time going, what happens when the wind doesn't blow? As if no one's thought of that. You know, this stuff has been analysed, wargamed, considered for literally decades now. You know, this is not some new industry that's appeared from nowhere. The renewables industry has been going since the 1980s. Advanced grid management has been evolving throughout that entire period. And what the study shows, what the people who actually run the grid say, people like National Grid who do this stuff every single day, is that this can be done and it is being done. Intermittency is a challenge. How, how is it being done? But we have solutions for dealing with it. What, what are those solutions? How, how is can it, it be done? Is it gas? Is well, the, it storage? Well, the first thing what is say, happening right now when the wind doesn't blow? Because I thought we were importing more gas as a result. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Cindy. Yeah, it is a portfolio approach. It is a mix of all those things. So the first thing to say is that you can actually get a lot more renewables before you have a problem. Like most of the modelling suggests you could get to up to 70, 80% before you have a serious issue with intermittency. As you head up towards that point, you're continuing to invest in other options. Now, the government has launched a consultation on what it calls its capacity market. And that is essentially a system of auctions paying for this backup capacity. I mean, backup's a slightly contested term in these worlds because is it really backup or is it more sort of flexibility? But let's call it backup capacity. And that will secure, cover the power that we need at any given time from a range of options. You have energy storage increasing all the time. We've just seen one of the UK's largest projects, Supply for Planning Commission. That's growing rapidly. You have this demand response flexible grid option whereby more and more businesses, and again, Greg mentioned this, automatically can reduce their power at times when it's required. And then obviously that helps manage the grid quite dynamically. You do have these periods where we have lower wind output or lower solar output, and therefore we need more more reliable longer term backup. That's where you do continue to use some gas. But at the same time, there are plans for capturing the carbon emissions that result from that gas and also plans for hydrogen fuel powered plants, which again, can provide this backup. This is new. This is challenging. There will be hiccups along the way. But the idea that this is not being considered is just not true. (laughs) I don't think anyone was saying that it wasn't being considered as such. Laura? No, but I mean, I just wanted to sort of add to what James was saying. How secure has it been that we're reliant on Russian gas, right? I mean, that's a really, really great bet. So, you know, there's no easy answer. But I'm picking up on James's point. There are still some gaps in policy, right? And the storage gap is still there up to a point. It's certainly being filled at the moment. And there are some really exciting things going on, whether it be long duration storage, not Mm. just what I would call flash freezing, right? We need long duration storage in my food analogy. that, That is frozen food, right? Which we can absolutely pull at any time we want, right? So that's very important. We're also building a lot of offshore wind with 
no transmission, right? I.e., we're building farms with no roads. So we also need to invest in that because we're losing a lot so of energy. So can you explain to... that a bit? So the, the windmills are turning, but the energy's not going anywhere? Well, or... what we haven't got is we haven't got the, the motorways that are taking it, the big transmission lines right. that are taking it from offshore onto the system and to where the demand lies. Okay. So we've got these little gaps between all the, you know, the great renewable story that need to be filled to enable that renewable story to be both secure, super cheap, and extremely flexible. And the last element is really the sort of psychological place that policy and regulation is, and they're constantly obsessed with supply. Mm. And actually what we've got to do is optimise the demand side and that starts to, to really unlock. Can I just also pick up on what James was saying about the US and EU? I, I was at an infrastructure conference, a global infrastructure conference, and they were saying, you know something, the UK has been really ahead of this game, but now we are looking at investing in the US and the EU because these are really, really ambitious packages. So from a political point of view, we have really got to lean in very, very quickly. We've got an advantage, right? Because we're seen as being a leader, but we are losing it quickly. Mm. So this is a moment for us to really, really move. Interesting. Well, Laura, I did want to ask you about politics because you were Tory MP once upon a time. When you talk about things like wasting energy, you know, I think back to Rishi Sunak talking about insulation and how important that was during the leadership contest. Yeah. Just wasn't sexy though, was it? <laughs> nobody, nobody thinks, yes, that's the big headline policy I want to get behind, but it is so important. So I just wonder how much, you know, in your putting your MP hat back on, politics as a kind of short term game in some ways and voters with some certain levels of inertia or nimbyism, you know, how much is that a challenge to overcome in, in doing everything that we rationally should be doing? Well, I think we've had a bit of a problem. The last couple of years has been a real hiatus of activity. So there's been a really, in some ways, we've slowed down. And there is a huge amount of actual work being done in Bayes and Ofgem. Decisions are just not being made. Now, actually, I think Graham Stewart is a really excellent minister. And I think things are starting to happen. I love this capacity market change, etc. I don't think there is the resistance that we had in the past. I don't think there is the green crap problem. I mean, <laughs> sure. maybe a very few group of people. Because I think people have now recognised that we are not going to invest in canals when the railways have started. I mean, this is really, we've really got to modernise our energy system. But the decisions are difficult and they're not naturally what I call political decisions, they're technical decisions. Mm. And that's why I hope that we actually create, in many ways, an institution, whether it be this future energy system operator, whether it be an energy agency that actually is really doing that. And then the politicians take what I call the political issues. Mm. But very quickly, coming back to Rishi, Rishi's great thing about energy efficiency and insulation, I want to see what we're going to do about it. Because yeah. today is, I mean, really talking about what Greg was talking about, you know, electric blankets, there are things that people can be doing today. We need that information campaign, which was launched. And I don't know whether 
either of you have seen no. much from it. <laughs> like I right? haven't. You know, what is the installation that you can do in your home this winter? And then what are those further measures? Although there was that like Grant Shapps Elf on the Shelf video, which I um, know. You and can it, hear but, but, but what I don't understand politically is the Treasury should be totally invested in us using the least amount of energy possible. I mean, it is in so much their interest. Mm. And I just don't understand how this gap between decision making and our national interest and the bottom line mm. that the treasury is picking up isn't resolved interesting well greg i wanted to get your thoughts on the nimbyism that i mentioned because octopus has an interesting onshore wind onshore is obviously a massive political headache right now and the government had a u-turn based on action from backbenchers former trussites and the like but Octopus has quite an interesting initiative called Fan Club. I, I just wonder if you can tell us about that and you know, whether or not you think that's the sort of thing that would get past NIMBYism. Yeah, it's a great example. First of all, we know that renewable energy is the cheapest source of energy and it's getting cheaper every year. But we've got this outdated market that means that consumers don't see that impact. In fact, in a bonkers kind of uh, example of outdated policy, prior to the crisis, we were taxing green electricity even though it was the cheapest source of power. And by the way, you know, we're supposed to be moving to a renewable world. And gas was essentially tax-free. Now, what we want to do is help people benefit from this change. Because, by the way, the underlying physics and economics are better. And so, you know, we came up with the idea that, you know, if you live near one of our wind farms, when the wind's blowing, you get cheap electricity. It's 20% off when the blades are turning and 50% off if they're turning quickly. Now, what what we're really trying to do there is help people enjoy the benefits of hosting that locally generated wind. And and, and the economics are really important. As Laura said, we don't have, I mean, again, you know, we've got an outdated way of building our grid, which means that if you start building an, an offshore wind farm today, or indeed an onshore one, you'll be told it'll be a decade, typically, before you can get a grid connection. Now, You know, if you want to know what's holding back our ability to give people cheap, secure, resilient British energy, which, by the way, also happens to be clean, that's one of the biggest causes. If we're able to use locally generated electricity, then you need less of that transmission capacity. So we should give people it cheaper. Now, what you find is if you say to people, would you like to host a wind farm and get cheap energy, particularly during the crisis, by the way, People really want to do this. By the way, eight or nine out of ten households, depending on how you measure it, are happy to have a wind farm in their postcode area, right? And if they're going to benefit from that cheap electricity, what happens? Well, they start thinking, how do I use this cheap electricity? You know, they get an electric car so they can fill it up with cheap energy when it's windy near them. They get an electric heat pump so they can power the house with cheap electricity when it's windy. By the way, loads of people say to me, people don't want to think about this, they just want to switch the lights on. It's like... Look, just like a supermarket puts yellow stickers on stuff when it's close to the sell-by day Mm. or when they've got a special offer to try or whatever, there's a million ways that they create special offers to get you to try or buy stuff. Not everyone responds to it. If I go to Tesco looking for some mints to make spaghetti bolognese, I'm going to buy the mints because I'm not a very creative cook. But if my mum goes to Tesco to buy mints for spaghetti bolognese and she sees that sausages are half price, she'll buy the sausages. And so we've got people who respond to these bargains And when they respond to it, it makes the whole system more efficient, dramatically making the use of the resources we have. And it can apply in energy, just like it applies in Tesco. 
Well, we've got to wrap up soon. But before we do, James, I mean, one thing that we haven't talked about so far is nuclear and how much of a role that can play. Because, I mean, it has a reputation, it has a stigma to it, but it isn't a fossil fuel. At the same time, I've got this figure here that says that by the time that this parliament ends, nuclear capacity in the UK will have fallen by 48%. So <laughs> part of that is geopolitical. You know, we don't want the Chinese to be involved in the same way that had been agreed before. But can you just talk a little bit about how much nuclear can replace gas as, you know, in that point about intermittency as the kind of backup system and what we need to do to get there? It's such a thorny topic, isn't it? I mean, it's one of those topics, I must admit, I've been covering this sector for a long time and I still don't quite know what I think, which I think is always, you know, compelling proof that there are really strong arguments on both sides. The challenge with nuclear is that we have a nuclear fleet that provides circa, what, 20, 15 to 20% of our power, and it's aging. It's going to retire. And the question then is, what do you replace those nuclear plants with? Do you replace them with new nuclear plants, potentially small modular reactors that are, you know, an entirely new technology? Or do you find an alternative way of providing clean power? Obviously, it has to be clean to meet those climate targets for the reasons we've previously discussed. So, you know, the government's view has always been for a long time that, you know, it should be replaced with nuclear, because if we don't, then we're going to have to build even more wind and solar, and the intermittency challenge becomes even more pronounced. Now, the flip side of that argument is the nuclear industry just has this, frankly, terrible track record of failing to deliver projects on time and on budget. You know, they lobby for more support, but they're their own worst enemies because the support that they do get then proves to be inadequate. And we find ourselves having to pay even more for these projects. I mean, if I was a betting man, I suspect we are going to see more projects. I think, you know, the idea of losing that 15, 20 percent of nuclear power that does help with security would be an immense challenge to the net zero transition. So we're likely to see a wave of projects come through in the coming decades. But the question is, can it be built to that timetable? And that's the sort of gauntlet that needs to be thrown down to nuclear developers to say, can you actually start to deliver on these promises? But what I do think is interesting here is it's just another example of really exciting change that is happening with these new emerging technologies coming through. In nuclear, there's talk of fusion, there's talk of these small modular reactors. In renewables, we're seeing you know, geothermal, we're seeing floating wind turbines, we're seeing ever more advanced solar technologies. I think we've all touched on it, but we are on the cusp of one of the most exciting industrial, technological, economic, social revolutions in human history. You know, We are going to be the first generation that powers our societies without burning stuff. And I get a little bit frustrated. There's a lot of talk in politics at the moment, isn't there, about how there's no big vision and that we're just being run by, you know, Sunak and Starmer are just these technocrats. And actually, they're both committed, you know, visibly on record committed to the complete transformation of the economy inside 30 years. You know, there is this huge economic project that's underway and nobody in sort of a lot of the political class talks about it in those terms. But that is what's happening. James has a great note to end on, it's certainly food for thought in future. James Murray, thank you so much for joining this podcast from The Spectator, as well as Laura Sands and Greg Jackson. And thank you very much for listening as well. If you enjoyed this podcast from The Spectator, looking at some of these chewy policy issues, you can find more on Spectator Briefings if you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash spectator briefings. Thanks for listening and do join us again. Thank you.